0: Good morning everyone, I'd say we're going to be reading Matthew 4 verses 1 to 11. Then the Spirit led Jesus in the desert to be tempted by the devil. Jesus fasted for forty days and nights. After this, he was very hungry. The devil came to Jesus to tempt him, saying, If you are the Son of God, tell these rocks to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written in the scriptures, A person lives not on bread alone, but by everything God says. Then the devil led Jesus to the holy city and put him on a high place of the temple. The devil said, If you are the son of God, jump down because it is written in the scriptures. He has put his angels in charge of you. They will catch you in their hands so that you will not hit your foot on the rocks. Jesus answered him, it also says in the scriptures, Do not test the Lord your God. Then the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. The devil said, If you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all these things. Jesus said to him, Go away from me, Satan. It is written in the scriptures, You must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So the devil left Jesus and angels came and took care of him. Thanks.
1: Well, thank you, Rachel, for bringing us that reading this morning. As we come to our sermon today, I've got just a a couple of thoughts I want to share with you and it's really helpful to have had that reading this morning although it's not the passage that our sermon comes from because I'm going to throw back to it a couple of times. We've just completed a sermon series that we titled Home and we considered how our home is in heaven, we considered the importance of obedience, we considered the... A significance of taking that personal step in saying well who's god calling to be his servant well it's me in, and that each one of us can identify ourselves as that person responding to christ and lastly that all ministry flows from encounter as we encounter god as we encounter his goodness whether it be for the the first time and we encounter his gift of grace and reconciliation through the power of the cross or whether it be for the hundred and first time as we continue our lives with our heavenly father recognizing him recognizing his purposes and promises within our own lives and during that series our series on home i touched upon the topic of fasting while discussing the wider theme within the the series of obedience and we considered how fasting was one way we practiced obedience to god i tried very quickly to unpack a few key thoughts about fasting then and i just want to go back and uh, spend a little time this morning considering fasting as we look at one story that i mentioned and obviously one story that i didn't during that sermon First of all, I want to just encourage you to open your Bibles. Sometimes I like to try and imagine various people in the church uh, pulling up their Bibles. Some of you, I imagine, have it there on the the coffee table next to you. Perhaps you've got it on the arm of the sofa. Still others of you, I perhaps naughtily imagine, running around the house trying to find it quickly, thinking, I wonder if this will be one of the weeks where he's going to read it for us. Or I wonder if this is one of those weeks where I'm going to need to find it myself quickly. Let me just say that this week is the latter. And so if you haven't started hustling, dashing around the house to grab your Bible now might be a great moment to do so. What I am going to do for us this morning as we open our Bibles to the book of Esther. I'll give you just a moment to find that, the book of Esther is I'm going to pre the story now I can't claim to be especially good at this and I'm not claiming to be writing a Schofield translation of the book for you uh, firstly because one already exists and secondly because it has no relation to me whatsoever and so I, I shan't claim to be any good at that but what I want to do is pre-see the story So for all of our families out there, especially our Children's Connect kids, settle in because this might be the best bit of the morning for you. Are we ready? (laughs) The story of Esther. The story takes place while the people of God are still in exile. And it's got a king, it's got a queen, it's got a baddie. It's got a goodie and it's got a strange uncle. It has all the makings of a wonderful Bible story, doesn't it? And so let me just give you a really quick 100 mile an hour overview. First of all, we've got the king, the king is the king of persia and in fact the king of persia happens to know that he's a particularly great king he knows he's a particularly great king because he's incredibly self-confident and he has a large empire and because he knows that he's so great so amazing he decides i'm gonna throw a party in my honor now that's either a wonderful example of us needing to practice a little bit more humility in our lives Or just the abundance of self-confidence that few of us will ever achieve, I suspect. But anyway, he throws this great big party. And this is where the story begins to take a bit of a weird twist for it to be a children's connect story. Because he gets drunk. Now, there aren't very many Bible stories where the preacher stands up in front of you and says, Well, then the king was incredibly drunk. This, unfortunately, is one of those weeks and to all the parents, let me just take a moment to apologise and say it really is in the Bible and therefore we're going to share it. But you might like to unpack some of the wider context later. Anyway, the king's drunk and he decides, you know what, I want to show off my wife. He thinks I've got just the prettiest queen. When everybody sees her, they're just going to be absolutely amazed. And so he calls for her. And she says, I don't want to go. And so he calls again and he says, come on, I want to show off to everybody how great you are. And she still doesn't come. And this is when it all gets a bit awkward. He gets really, really cross. And I think this is a great encouragement to us not to get drunk because sometimes people do silly things. In fact, he gets so angry, he essentially manages to divorce her. And at the same time, create the popular TV show, The Bachelor, all in one go. You see, he then decides that, well, in fact, he's encouraged, worst of all, by his friends around him. And this is why it's so important that we have godly friends and godly family to encourage us to pursue the ways of God rather than just doing our own thing. But it's too late. He's basically divorced her. And so his. His friends say, Wouldn't it be great if we just find you another wife? And so they they basically have the equivalent of a beauty pageant to find him a new wife. And this is where our strange uncle character joins the story. Mordecai is his name. Um, And this is one of those Bible stories that seems a little bit morally ambiguous. Let me explain what I mean for our children's connect who might be watching with their parents this week. It's one of those strange Bible stories, kids, where we see something in the Bible. And we know that it's not a good thing that we're reading about, but it's part of a wider story. And actually, when we reflect that people in the Bible are just like us. In fact, sometimes they're worse than us and sometimes they're better than us. When we see their humanity sometimes that can be a great illustration and sometimes that can be really helpful in helping us to understand the goodness of god anyway in this story this strange uncle mordecai decides that the best thing to do would be to try and set his niece up with the king i know weird twist Well, it turns out she's incredibly beautiful and the king falls for her and they end up getting married, making her the queen, the new queen. And while all of this is going on, there's a baddie. A baddie in the story is called Haman. And you see, he becomes more and more important. In fact, after a short while, he becomes the most important person in the kingdom after the king. And so as he becomes more and more important, he eventually gets to the point where he decides that he's so important, he manages to get it announced that every single person in the kingdom needs to bow when he enters a room. And Mordecai decides, no, I'm not going to bow. And one of the difficult things in this story, when I've said it's morally ambiguous, is that we're not entirely sure whether Mordecai refuses to bow because he only wants to bow to God, or whether he refuses to bow because... He's stubborn and lacks humility. And because we don't know, I can't make a great preaching point there, and so we just have to keep going with the story to see what happens next. Well, what happens next is Haman starts throwing these nice banquets with the king and they're having dinner together, and eventually Haman gets so angry with Mordecai, he decides that he's gonna try and get rid of all of the people. ...that Mordecai belongs to. He's going to try and get rid of the Jews. And shock horror... ...he gets away with it. A decree goes out, a plan is in motion. A plan to destroy all of God's people, the Jews who are in exile... ...in this great, huge empire... And this huge empire is, is essentially turning its back on the people of God. In fact, worse than that, worse than that, the decree goes out that they can kill all of the Jews. And so Esther and Mordecai get together to reverse the decree. And I think this is the really key point in the story. You see, lots of people say the key point in the story is just after the king reverses that decision, essentially. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. But for me, I've always thought the key point in this entire story is that Esther and Mordecai pray and fast to God. You see, they pray and fast and I think God hears their prayers Because something amazing happens. In fact, we sometimes refer to these amazing moments that just seem more than coincidences. In fact, this is my least favourite piece of Christian jargon that I've come across. uh, And I hope you enjoy it this morning. Sometimes we talk about a thing called a God incidence. Where something is clearly a coincidence, but it seems to have God's fingerprints all over it. So rather than giving God the glory, we refer to it as a God incidence. It makes me cringe every single time because either we need to pray and discern that it is God or I think we just need to move on and say well wasn't that fortunate and marvel at it and try and understand it and maybe even pray about it. But anyway, setting that to one side before I get stuck on a hobby horse. You see, this amazing thing happens. They start praying and fasting and in their prayer and their fasting. The king the king decides that he needs to sleep and so he asks for all of the recent history to be read to him and as he's having all the recent history read to him he remembers that just after Esther became his queen Mordecai had overheard some soldiers plotting to kill him plotting to kill the king and rather than let that happen rather than Keeping his head down and not getting involved, as could have been so tempting to do. He went to Esther and Esther went to the king and it saved the king. And as he, as he thinks about this, as he's falling asleep, he decides what needs to happen is everybody needs to praise Mordecai. Isn't this an amazing reversal? I mean, a moment ago we heard that Mordecai and Esther and everybody that they know, all of their family and friends and all of the people... They're going to lose their lives because of the king's decree. And now Haman the baddie in the story is made to walk Mordecai around. And show him off to all the people so that all the people can praise him for his wonderful deed in saving the king's life. The problem is the decree is still out there. Nobody's walked it back yet. It's still going to happen. And so Mordecai and Esther get together and they start planning and praying. And as they plan and they pray, they come up with an idea. They throw these banquets and eventually they talk to the king. And in talking to the king, and in fact, as as Esther risks seeing the king, because even being seen by the king when he hasn't called her, could get her in so much trouble that she can be killed. God's favour continues to go with Esther and Mordecai. So much so that Mordecai essentially replaces Haman as the most important person in the kingdom. And the story gets even better, just not to make it feel too Disney here, because it isn't a very Disney ending to the story. Mordecai replaces Haman but actually it turns out the king can't reverse a decree and so the king has to make another decree that if anybody attacks any of the Jews they can fight back and they can kill anyone that's against them and so they manage to kill all of Haman's family and actually the king even has Haman put to death on a spike that he had been planning Haman had been planning to use on Mordecai. It's a little bit of a grisly end to this story, isn't it? And so I told you that story because I wanna just observe a couple of things. In fact, I started to observe this to you already. The critical point in the story, most people seem to agree is the reversal that the king remembers. In fact, when we look at this story as a literary device, as a part of storytelling, and I don't want this to start feeling like BBC bike size to anybody and start talking about literary structures here, but there's very much a, a one side and then another. And you see on this one side, we've got things getting worse and worse and worse, and it's coming down. And then on the other side, we see it getting better and better and better, and there's this key pivotal moment in the middle where, where the king remembers that Mordecai's a good guy. And I think the critical part in this story is that the people of God turn to him. They turn to him and whether they turn to him out of long-standing historic faith-filled tradition or whether they turn to him because they've got a deep sincere faith, the story doesn't say. In fact, the the story is shockingly lacking in explicit references to God. And some people say this is because the story is a wonderful example of God's faithfulness, even when we're slow, when we're reticent to turn to him, that God remains ever-present and ever-faithful, ready to help us, hearing our prayers and waiting for us to cry out to him, revealing himself and sharing his goodness with us. Others say, well... Actually, this, this story is one of those stories that is full of God incidences. The whole passage that we've read, or that I've tried to pray see here, several books, all lack explicit reference to God because these are God incidences. And one of the great benefits to us as the people of God is that when we read stories like this, we can begin to identify God's fingerprints at work in our lives. That as we see these stories unfold, as we begin to look at them and consider their meaning, we need to have a fresh revelation of God at work in our lives. And that if we would take the opportunity just to step back, to put God first and to ask him to reveal himself, those encounters that we talked about the other week, those encounters with God, aren't always these thunderous moments of revelation where we pray and then the next moment God comes like a pillar of cloud or a a fire in the night sky or even a mountaintop experience. But sometimes what happens is God comes to us in everyday situations where he is slowly working things to our good. We've often talked about as a church church the passage in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. It talks about, in fact, it's partway through a story and I don't want to get into the whole context of that story. But as we remember Jeremiah 29, 11, we remember it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not evil. To prosper you and not to harm you. It's talking about God's perspective on us. But more than that, The passage goes on and in verses 12 and 13 it says, When you seek me with your whole hearts, when you seek me in prayer, when you turn to me, when you give me your full attention, I will be found by you. And I think this passage, this story is a fantastic example to us of the people of God being in desperate need to find God. And so they find God in their need when they turn to him in prayer and fasting. You see, God is faithful, but more than that, God is our heavenly father. And when we seek him, he becomes more and more involved. It's not that he ever turned his back on us or wasn't involved in our lives, but sometimes for us to recognize him at work and sometimes for us to know more of his goodness, we need to practice acts of simple obedience and faithfulness. And I think that's what happens in this story. And in fact, to answer the question, why am I telling you this story that you might be thinking this morning? Well, first, I think it's a great opportunity to consider God's faithfulness. I think it's a great opportunity to recognise that when people turn to God, he works in their lives all the more. And that in fact he's a relational God and continues to seek our hearts even when we're slow to seek his. And that despite the people, even God's people being deeply flawed and I think this is a wonderful story to explain how flawed God's people can be. In fact I was chatting with somebody about this story and we were talking about the different ways you could tell this story. And uh I guess if you were trying to praise the story another way, you could t- talk about the the time in the Bible that somebody's strange uncle uh, arranged for them to to be married after a beauty contest and that would still be a an interesting praise, perhaps even a fair praise, of what's happened here. you could talk about drunk kings and resentful wives you could talk about all sorts of strange and peculiar behaviors you could refer to the story of the time that they killed a man on a big stake in the ground and i think all of these would be interesting versions of this story to try and tell but i think they would miss this critical fact this important revelation Of the person of God at work. God wants to work in our lives. God is at work in our lives. And I think the amazing thing about our Heavenly Father. Is that he's not just content to work in our lives. He wants to have a relationship with us too. He wants us to seek him out. He wants us to ask him to be present. And when we do something like practicing obedience and faithfulness, we have the opportunity to prepare our hearts for the ministry, for the work, for the goodness that he has in store for us. Sometimes when we talk about fasting, people say, oh yeah, but should I fast? Is it really important for me to do? And to that, I would just say, I think it's a great way for us to learn to recognise God at work. I also want to say, I think we see in fasting, not just something that's biblical, but something that Jesus did too. And there seem to be lots of different reasons for fasting. Perhaps it's to seek God and ask for his favour, so that before you go to the king, as Esther did in this story... You would know God's faithfulness. You would know God's presence with you. That you would seek him and ask him for something. Asking him for favour in a difficult situation. I think that's a great reason to fast. Perhaps it's like the reading we had this morning that Rachel shared with us. Where Jesus was sent out into the wilderness and he was tempted. And there was a, a real trial that he was going through. It was a challenge to him. But as it prepared him and as it gave him the opportunity to just show his faith in God, his purpose in God. It prepared the way for his ministry that was to come. Perhaps it's like Daniel and it's about honouring God first. Seeking to live his ways and knowing that the goodness of God will never let us down or disappoint us. Whatever the case may be. And I think there are so many different reasons that people fast. I think the important thing for us to consider as we consider fasting is. Our desire for God to be at work in our lives. Learning to notice when he is at work. Seeking him, trusting him and not just invoking his name like some sort of. Some sort of genie with a lamp. But are we prepared to inconvenience ourselves? Are we prepared to sacrifice something that is valuable to us? And for the sake of God's incomparable work in our lives, are we prepared to put Him first? You see, there aren't very many ways for us to put God first in our lives practically. In fact, that spiritual reality, the decision to follow Christ daily is both something that we do practically, but sometimes it can be hard to identify ways that we're doing that. And if you're a practical person like me, perhaps having given your life to Jesus, perhaps having been baptised, you think, well, what else is there for me to do? And there are things, things like communion, things like baptism and things like having your quiet time, your devotional time with the Lord. But fasting as well. Why not consider that? In the coming weeks we're going to have an opportunity as a, a church to to fast. And I wanted to just highlight that for you. And say that perhaps you would just start praying about and considering whether you might participate in that fast with us. I don't want to give you a set reason that you have to fast, but encourage you just to begin to pray about why you might be fasting, what it is that God wants to do and reveal in our lives together. I think fasting and seeking God in the midst of the pandemic is a great thing to do. But more than that, is there something that God wants to speak to you about? Is there some area of your life where you need to bring more of God to bear? Is there some area of your life where you need to practice obedience? Where you need to ask God to be at work? Well, I don't want to answer that question for you, but instead just encourage you to, to be considering that, to be praying about that. And uh, if you have any questions, please do feel free to just send those in. You can message the church directly. And if you do that, we'll try and... Get back to you with some thinking. I guess I'd just like to pray for us now, and uh, perhaps you join me in praying about this this topic of fasting. So perhaps you just bow your heads and. If it helps you, if you're at home, perhaps close your eyes. I don't know if that's helpful or if you need to keep one eye on the kids still. So Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to, to seek you, to know you, to trust you. Father, that's our prayer as a church, that we would seek you, know you and trust you more and more. Every single day of our lives. And Father we pray that as we. As we come to you. As we trust in you. As we seek to know you more and more. Father help us to consider this issue. Of fasting. Father we pray that you would encourage us to just know whether that's something you're calling us to something that you would use to to move our hearts to soften our hearts to help us find more of you help to give that purpose and meaning and father if it's if it's just as simple as participating with the whole church and being a part of doing that together lord i pray that you'd just continue to to help people to see your purpose and perspective in this. Heavenly Father, we just praise your name. We thank you for your goodness. Help us to know you more. Help us to seek first your kingdom. Amen.